I want to continue in our series in Acts. So if you have your Bible this morning, turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 15 through 20. It's also going to be on the screen, and it's also on your notes page if you picked a copy up in the lobby. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 15 through 20. And as you're turning there this morning, just a little bit of context. Peter and John have been arrested and are currently on trial for preaching Christ after the healing of a paralytic man at the beautiful gate. The council has nothing to say in reply, so the disciples' defense to the disciples' defense of the gospel or the healing of the paralytic. The council attempts to intimidate the disciples by threatening them to never speak or teach in Jesus' name again. So that's kind of the context we find ourselves in. If you turn to Acts 4.15-20, through 20, it says this. Luke writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he says, but when they had commanded them, being the disciples, to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them and is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to not, to let them, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it's right or not in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So this morning, I want to, the, the first point I want to make, I'm going to take three different points this morning. Okay, The first thing I want us to look at this morning is the first two verses, verses 15 and 16. When we think about when your witness doesn't lead to conversion. When your witness doesn't lead to conversion of the person you're witness to. Let's read verse 15 and 16 again. It says this, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a, note, for a, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. If this was... A TV show. If this story was a TV show or a feel-good movie, this scene right here, 15 and 16, where the council is where the council would have recognized the error of their ways, apologized to the man that was healed by the disciples, and then made restitution to the disciples for holding them in a prison cell overnight. But unfortunately, this isn't a TV show. This isn't a feel-good TV show. And the disciples, nor the healed man, receive any type of apology. And tragically, the council, the council in this passage, didn't see the truth of the gospel after hearing it and seeing a healed man healed, nor did they own up to their part in partnering with Rome to crucify Jesus. There's no apology, there's no repentance, there is just a digging of their heels in the sand here. The council saw a healed man. They recognized it as a miracle. They recognized that this was a notable sign. I think verse 15 is what it says. A notable miracle. Excuse me. uh, Verse 16 says a notable sign has been performed through them. They saw this with their own eyes. 
and that they, they still didn't come to faith. They, they, and they almost admit that there, there's absolutely no churning of their heart. It's almost like there's a, there's a callousness there. So what do we do when we witness and tell others about Jesus and nothing happens? They don't want to talk about spiritual things anymore. They don't want to visit your church. Nothing. What do we do? What should be our response when we've lived like believers in front of them, when we're loving to them, when we have solid answers to the questions they have, yet they still want nothing to do with faith? I think the first place we have to begin is with perspective. When we say things like, I've, I've done all of this stuff, I've done all this, I've lived this way in front of them, I have good answer, I've, I've, I've done all of this stuff, and they're, they're still not responding kind of the way I hope they would, i.e., I've done all these external acts of love and kindness and nothing's happening yet. We might need to change how we think about why we're doing what we're doing and asking ourselves why we live as believers in front of other people. One of the results we hope to have as believers, one of the results we pray for as believers is for other people to be pointed to Christ by our lives, by the way we live. It's a great motivation. It's one of the primary motivators of Christian living. But if we're not very careful, if we're not very careful, that great motivation can morph into almost a way to sell people on Jesus. Like if I'm just good enough, then they're going to see it and then just respond. So what do I mean by that? We all know that feeling when we walk into a department store or a car lot and the salesman has that oddly nice and courteous personality. And we usually get a weird feeling immediately when they approach us. The reason that we get that weird feeling immediately is because most of the time when we talk to a person, we intuitively know if that person is genuinely kind or if they're just trying to seal the deal, whether they're selling us jeans or a car. If we get the impression that person is just trying to seal the deal by their personality, ironically, we're less likely to buy from them. But if we know that that salesperson is genuinely a good person across the board, you know, they're, they're great with their spouse and kids, they volunteer in the community, we are more likely to buy from them because we know that they're just not trying to be nice to us to seal a deal or make a sell. There's a trust there that their motivation is right and their motivation is genuine. When they love us, it is simply because that's who they are and they really do care about us. I know this isn't rocket science, but our mission as believers isn't to sell people on the idea of Jesus. The gospel itself is powerful enough to do that on its own. And it's powerful enough to accomplish that on its own, and it doesn't need our help. We just need to live our true convictions and our true love out 
in front of other people. It's not a sell job that we do. It's just the way we live. The reason we live like believers, church, friends, the reason we live like we do is simply because that's how believers live. Period. Regardless if anyone responds or not, whether people come to Christ because of our lifestyle does not determine whether we will continue to act like believers or not. If a thousand people come to Christ because of my life, because I pointed them to Jesus, then praise the Lord. That's my hope. I hope that as many people as possible come to Christ because of my life. But if no one, if no one ever comes to Christ because of my life, I'm going to continue to live like a believer anyway. The reason we live like believers is above all because we love the Lord and want to be obedient to Him. When we're obedient to Jesus and love Him as a first priority in our life, all those other things will come naturally as a byproduct. It's the icing on the cake. So when people don't respond the way you think they should because of your life or on a timetable that you think they should respond to, it's not an indictment on you as a person or the effectiveness of your witness. When people don't respond to the gospel, it's not because you said, quote, the wrong thing or aren't doing enough good deeds to convince them of the goodness of the gospel. You're not a failure because someone doesn't come to know the Lord if you're obedient in sharing your faith. We aren't called to be the agent of conversion in another person's life. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But we're definitely called to be obedient to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. Live your life submitted to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to do the work in people's hearts. So when we live our lives solely because we love the Lord, regardless of response, it also gives us confidence to remain faithful when we're threatened and talked down to because of our faith. Now, I want to back up a little bit. It's, it, what do we do when that person doesn't respond? I want to encourage you to not take it personally. Don't see it as an indictment on you or an indictment on your walk with Jesus. And, and, I, and I want to emphasize that because sometimes we get so scared or so worried about sharing our faith because we're scared about what they will think about us or that if we witness and they don't respond, then that means I didn't do a good enough job. The reality, friends, is your command from Jesus is to go and tell. The Holy Spirit is the one that changes hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that transforms that person. Your calling when they don't respond is just to obedience into sharing. Just share the gospel. Allow that to be evident. But don't get down on yourself when somebody, when you share the gospel and that other person does not respond. Your job is not to save them, but to share with them. And again, it gives us confidence when we're threatened or when we're talked down to. Let's look at, look at uh, the next two verses. We're going to look at when you're threatened. Verse 17 and 18 says this, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, 
let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in Jesus' name. Now on the surface, this verse can seem as if the disciples kind of got off with a slap on the wrist. But that interpretation isn't, isn't quite correct and it doesn't quite paint the clearest picture of what happened in this passage. The only reason the council didn't give the disciples serious jail time or public punishment or worse was because of the public healing of the formerly lame man. Now, as I mentioned last week, the council didn't see this healing of the formerly lame man as a parlor trick. They didn't say, what, you know, what kind of trick? How did you pull this off? Because it's kind of deceptive. They believed that this man was actually paralyzed and now he is actually healed. It wasn't a parlor trick. It wasn't a magic trick because the disciples didn't claim it to be that. They actually claimed and they said it very clearly. They did it in the name of Jesus. The council knew Jesus' claims. They knew of the circumstances of his life and his death. And they were probably doing a lot of soul searching at this moment after they see the healing of the layman. They're probably doing a lot of soul searching regarding his resurrection, regarding Jesus' resurrection. And it seems the council knew they, they seem to have known they were in the wrong by how they were trying to silence these guys. They didn't come at them with an argument. Let me tell you how you're wrong. How blah, blah. They didn't do any of that stuff. What they tried to do was silence them as if they knew they were wrong and were trying to cover this up. They decided to dig their heels in and try to cover up the wrongness by attempting to stamp out the early church through forcing their silence. Now remember, Rome and the religious leaders right now in this culture, in the culture that we're reading about here, are in total control. There is no other authority higher than these two groups of people, Rome and the religious teachers. So the nonverbal implication of this, of what the, the religious leaders were saying, was not only don't speak or teach in Jesus' name, it was, don't speak or teach in Jesus' name or else. And so they were trying to threaten the disciples into silence. Now, notice the religious leaders did not ask the disciples kindly or they didn't gently request that the disciples stop talking. They told them. They commanded them. They told the disciples as if they were the ones who could control their actions through intimidation with the force of law and culture behind them. So the disciples at that moment, they had a decision to make and it was very polar. It was bow to the threat or bend the knee to Jesus. It was that black and white. And if there ever comes a day, friends, when law and culture is completely against us, we will have a decision to make and it will be the same one that the disciples have to make in this passage. It's either bow to the threat or bend the knee to Christ. And often, in order to maintain our witness at times or as much peace as possible in a 
harsh and contentious situation, we try as best as possible as believers, most of us do this, to offer a nuanced response or to use a soft touch when we speak to other people as believers, especially when there's an intimidating situation happening. But this was not possible in this particular passage, in this particular context. The disciples, Peter and John, were put in a situation that ultimately boiled down to their allegiance. Who are they ultimately allegiant to? They're either allegiant to the culture and those who control it, or to Christ alone in this passage. They had a choice to make. You either shut up or you can continue to speak. That was the choice that they were presented with. With threat, by the way, of both the religious leaders and with the power of Rome behind them. The implication was, we killed John the Baptist, no problem. We crucified your teacher, no problem. It will be no problem for us to do this to you. And from what Rome really did, they got a hold of Peter later on. But you know what? He never bent the knee. And they crucified him upside down. My question to us, would we have this same boldness? That even when we're threatened with law and culture, that we would respond like John the Baptist, like Jesus, like Peter, and say, you will take my life, but I will never bend the knee. When it's put to me between allegiance to law and culture or to Jesus, I'm choosing Jesus every single time. And at our current moment, we are not presently forced to make a polar choice between our faith and participating in the culture. But our current moment might have us facing decisions every day that might ask us or demand us to subtly undermine our allegiance to Jesus in small or even perhaps large ways. Things such as whether we're going to act ethically at work whether we're going to be a good and ethical student, an honest student, whether we're going to backbite or gossip our fellow students and co-workers at work, or how we're going to act in our marriage relationship, if we're going to be faithful in our marriage relationship, if we're going to keep growing in our marriage relationship, if we're going to treat our spouses as Christ loved the church. It'll ask us to maybe undermine the, the values that we explicitly or implicitly teach our kids, whether it's okay to allow certain things in the culture in your home or your, you would rather sacrifice uh, growth in Christ for something else that seems far more appealing, whether we're going to value material prosperity over investing in our family and in our faith. And it's the issue of allegiance that I want to really drive home this morning. Allegiance is an altogether different thing than having preferences or fondness or proclivities towards something. Allegiance, allegiance is a faithfulness to something over and above all rivals. It sees it as most valuable and worthy against all other rivals. And as we will see in verses 19 and 20, Peter and John didn't see the council's command as a suggestion to mere temperance or to be temperate 
with their speech or temperate with their actions or to just tone it down a little. You don't have to be so extreme. The disciples saw the council as commanding them against their ultimate allegiance to Christ. And the disciples knew something that we need to be very aware of today. They knew the council couldn't force them to stop believing in Jesus or to stop having faith in Jesus. The council couldn't compel their hearts. So the first move of the council was to silence the disciples, to compel their speech, to coerce and take away their speech. The council's first move wasn't to throw them in jail for the rest of their lives, especially after seeing the healing of a paralytic man. Their first move was to move against their speech, that you cannot say this thing or else. And the disciples, as we'll see uh, in, in a moment, they immediately recognized the trap for what it was. If the early Christians complied with this, if they complied with this and were silent, then stamping out the church in its infancy would have been relatively easy if they could control what they said. Why did the council warn the disciples not to speak? Because we always speak about what we love. We always speak about what we value. And when we speak about what we love, we often do it clearly and we do it compellingly. We love to talk about what we love. We love to talk about our kids, our favorite sports teams, whether a PC or Mac guy, it doesn't matter. Whatever you love, you talk about. In fact, we can't help talking about what we love. It's always on our lips. You love, again, certain college teams, musicians, video games, you talk about it. Speech is the clarifier of our heart and our motivation. But Jesus said it best. He says, out of the mouth, the what speaks? The heart speaks. For example, guys, husbands, let's say, for example, hypothetically, you wash the dishes, you mowed the lawn, you fixed the car, you vacuumed the rug, windexed the windows, but you never said to your wife or your kids, I love you with your words. At first, getting all of those chores done might feel pretty nice to your wife and to your family. I'm sure it would. But imagine this. Imagine if you never, ever expressed with your words how you felt. And they started asking you why you never said you love them. You might be tempted to reply, Obviously, I love you. Look at all that I've done. Look at those windows. It's like there's not even glass there at all. Okay? Look at those dishes. Beautiful. This, this lawn looks like a football field. Okay? It's gorgeous. Don't you know by what I've done that I love you? Look at everything I've done. And you would feel deflated. I've done all this stuff, but how does she, what more does she want? words, okay? 
You have to say it, but your family might hear that reply of all the stuff you've done and say, you know, I, I guess that could mean you love me, but it could also mean, it could also mean that you just like a clean house too. When you love something for real, when you're passionate about something and value it, you talk about it. And so the way to stamp some things out, to stamp out passion, to stamp out conviction, to stamp out all of those things, you don't stop the work necessarily. They didn't tell them, quit healing people. They told, said, quit talking about it because that would spread that way. So when you're passionate about it, you talk about it. It's always on your lips because when we talk about it, that shows we have confidence. And the more people who have confidence, we have confidence and unity between us. And that's the last thing I wanted to speak on this morning is confidence. We have confidence in unity, and we get this cue from the disciples. 19 and 20 says this, but Peter and John answered them. By the way, they told them to be quiet. What's the first thing the disciples did? They just started talking. I love it, okay? That's, that's low key in this verse, by the way, that they told them to be quiet, and they responded. Best verse to me. I love that. And it says, they answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Because, why? For we cannot but speak. In other words, we can't help it of what we have seen and heard. Two things I want us to notice here. The first one we already talked about. They spoke about what they valued and what they loved. And the second is one of the reasons they were bold, the disciples were bold, was because they were unified in their agreement about what was most valuable. And I'm gonna amend that statement. They were in agreement about who was most valuable. When we are unified around who is most valuable, we free each other to speak with a kind of confidence and a kind confidence as well when we know there's in the face of others who might disagree with us or when we know others might disagree with us. I saw this principle in action um, two weeks ago on television. I saw it ironically when uh, Kentucky played Kansas in basketball, okay? Yes, I'm gonna talk about basketball for a second, but it's important, listen. There's always this awkward tension when Kentucky plays Kansas because they are the two most epic dominant programs in all of college basketball. They are the two most winning programs in all of college basketball. Of the thousands of games that have been played by these two teams, they are only separated by 43 games, of which Kentucky's leading, okay? And then it's a long, long distance to third place. So when these two teams play, it's a big deal because there's clout on the line, there's respect, there's animosity, there's history, all of this stuff. And they were playing two weeks ago at a place called The Fog. It's one of this awesome college basketball temples. And there was probably 22,000 people in attendance, sold out because the real Big Blue was playing Kansas. And what happened was Kentucky absolutely went on their court and put on a show. It was awesome. They whipped them by 20 points. Oh, it was gorgeous to watch. And here's the deal. In the nosebleed seats, up in the corner of the fog, something happened 
a small group, and what I mean by small group when you think about 22,000 people, it's probably 100 people up in the corner of this arena. You started hearing it slowly, but then it started building. Go big blue, go big blue. And it got louder and louder and louder. <clears throat> and you can check it out. It was all over the news. It was all over social media. These people were looking at these Kentucky fans like they were crazy, and they were because they went into an arena with 20-something thousand people who were against them and did not care what they thought because they knew Kentucky was the real deal. And they were so excited to chant this over and over and over again. They were confident in their unity because they knew what the real deal was. And notice how Luke here in this passage quotes both disciples as saying the same thing. It says, Peter and John said, and he quotes them as if they're both saying this almost like in unity. Now, I'm all about the fact that even if no one stands with you, then you stand alone for Christ. But I don't believe that's how it should be, should be for all of us, and I don't believe that's the ideal for us as Christians, that we should stand together in unity. We are called to stand alone if we have to, but we come to church and we're involved in small groups and we take care of each other in the context of a church, not only to agree and grow in our personal beliefs about the Bible, but to support each other and find unity with each other in Christ. It's relational as well as mental and emotional and hard. It's all of those things together. It's much easier to live like a believer when we know there are other believers cheering us on. So what are you doing throughout this week to encourage those both here and those you work with and those you go to school with who are believers? Conclusion. Let's ask ourselves some devotional questions before we end this morning. Three different things I want us to kind of stop with in terms of devotional. Does someone rejecting your witness affect your desire to share Jesus with someone else? If so, change how you think about rejection from thinking they're rejecting you to understanding that the Holy Spirit is the only one who transforms hearts. That your job is obedience, not to transform them. Two, consider how you should respond in the event that you are told to quit talking about Jesus or never speak about Jesus. How are you gonna respond? What is your game plan in that situation? Third and finally, identify another believer in your life who you know could use some encouragement and be, and resolve, be resolved to be an encouraging presence in their life for God's glory. Let's, Meditate on those three things. If you have your sermon outlined, they're in there. Keep it throughout the week. Meditate on those. Pray through those things. And me encourage you this week uh, to keep living for the Lord. And thirdly, if, if you want to give your life to Christ this week, if you want to join this church, this front is open for you. I'll be here to receive you. Would love to have you. Would love to pray with you. Sam and our worship team is going to come lead us in a song of response. Let's give this time over to the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray.